0: Welcome to Healthy Tales with Dr. Mondrian Contreras. As much as your health and well-being are important, so is the health and well-being of your pet. Join us today as we break down some of the top treatment and wellness programs that you need to know about in order to help your pet live a fulfilling and healthy life. And now, here's your host, Dr. Mondrian Contreras.
1: Welcome to Healthy Tales where we discuss current animal-related news, interview experts on specific areas of veterinary medicine, and discuss product information for pet owners on our Product of the Week segment. I'm your host, Dr. Monjan Contreras, and with me today are my three amazing co-hosts, Dr. Elaine McCarthy, Dr. Uh, Robbie Unsel, and our veterinary technician, Tim. Thanks so much for being here, guys. No problem. Uh, We have a great show for you today. I'll be interviewing Dr. Priya Bhatt, and she'll be discussing veterinary medicine with us on veterinary acupuncture. Have any of you guys ever had acupuncture done on your guys' self or your pets? Nope.
2: I'm gonna try Yes, yes, I have.
1: I'm maybe gonna have a needle my neck. My neck is killing me today. But later, (laughs) I will introduce my product of the week and discuss how important it is in helping fight one of the worst epidemics in our country. But first, let's pause for some news. I'm really gonna have to need to come up with a different transition. I know McCarthy's gonna kill me. So, Elaine, why don't you start us off with the latest in animal-related COVID news.
3: Yes, here with your COVID updates for pets. So, COVID has been confirmed in several animals in the US. Um, It it appears to spread from um, humans to animals, um, little risk of spreading from animals to humans. Uh, Obviously, we still need to discover more about it to find out more information, um, but we do still have some recommendations from the CDC. Um, Just like we talked about last week, continue with social distancing your pets. Um, Try not to let them interact with other humans or pets as much as you can. Um, If you are an owner and you are showing clinical signs, ideally you would isolate yourself from your pet. Try to have somebody else take care of the pet if possible. If not possible, um, you basically want to avoid snuggling, sharing food, kissing, sleeping with your pet, things like that. Um, If your animal is showing clinical signs of COVID, um, don't take it into the vet immediately, um, but call your vet to determine what the next step should be at that point. Um, Regularly washing your pet to keep the virus off the pet um, is going to help kind of prevent spread from pets to pets. Um, And ideally you would stock up on at least two weeks' supply of food, meds, supplements, um, have your vaccine history on hand. Uh, with medication schedule and your vet contact information in in case something were to happen and you needed to have somebody else take care of your pet for you. For more updates, um, you can go to the CDC website to kind of keep an eye on, on what we should do and recommendations um, going forward.
1: Excellent. I mean, I, I think these guidelines are great and hopefully it will be, it'll help keep pets on leashes and keep cats indoors, both of which I'm a huge fan of. So again, to me, good for the CDC for making these, uh, For making these guidelines. All right, Robbie, uh, what do you have on the legislative front?
4: Uh, Yeah, so uh, we're covering HR uh, 2850 uh, today and it's titled the Humane Retirement Act, uh, which is actually one of two bills currently being considered uh, before the U.S. House of Representatives to ensure that healthy research dogs and cats are adopted uh, into suitable homes when their study is completed. Uh, The federal bill that's uh, currently before uh, the House of Representatives is actually quite similar to a few state bills uh, that have already been passed and enacted into law. Uh, This specific bill was introduced in uh, December of 2018 by New York Representative Kathleen Rice, uh, and it actually has a lot of common sense ideas that motivate its central points. Uh, And that common sense approach is kind of reflected in the bipartisanship of the 65 co-sponsors of the bill. I think that it actually might be one of the only pieces of legislation that is co-sponsored by both Republican Representative Matt Gates of Florida and Democratic Representative Eric Swalwell of California, which is quite a remarkable achievement, uh, especially in today's political climate. Uh, the bill itself is quite short. Uh, and aims to amend the Public Health Service Act to ensure that healthy research dogs and cats are adopted into suitable homes, Uh, This would cover any biomedical research facility that receives federal funding and stipulates uh, that after completion of any testing or research that these facilities make a reasonable effort to offer these cats and dogs up for adoption. Uh, There are some guidelines that they recommend following that include the behavior health of the pet uh, and removing civil liability uh, for any issues that may develop post adoption. Now, the, the American Veterinary uh, Medical Association has a policy position covering this type of legislation uh, that was updated last year and probably in response to this uh, to the introduction of this bill. And, you know, I, I am in 100% agreement with their position, uh, which is that they support the adoption of healthy post-study research and teaching animals into long-term private homes as companion animals uh, through the use of adopted programs developed and managed by these research institutions. But they stress that the process needs to have expert veterinary Uh, guidance, oversight, and input, Uh, and the wording of the legislation wouldn't quite mesh with a few of their recommendations on just a a few points. Uh, First, the legislation is a little bit vague over who would oversee uh, this process, and the AVMA policy recommends that it falls under the purview uh, of the attending veterinarian at the research institution, um, and also the Institutional Animal Care and Use Committee, which every non-private institution who has research animals uh, should already have. Uh, They also recommend that the attending veterinarian plays a central role in development and oversight of the program and has final authority when it comes to the adoption requests. Uh, Second, they also uh, uh, recommend that the adoption process is performed under expert veterinary guidance and that each animal's adoption suitability be based on health status and behavior, which the bill does at least allude to, uh, but it isn't specific about who assesses the behavior and health. Um, And then also, too, the ABMA recommends that each animal be vaccinated and neuter or spayed. Uh, prior to adoption Um, And then kind of the last little point that they uh, recommend is that the adopters need to be educated about all pertinent information uh, regarding these um, uh, research animals uh, in terms of their behavior and their health prior to adoption and that there is a record of transfer uh, of this information and so they do prefer that this adoption is done primarily between the research institution and individuals uh, as opposed to a third party organization uh, just to ensure that the information has been properly conveyed to the to the owner and so i would say that the current legislation falls uh, just a little bit short on a few of those recommendations but it could easily be improved through the uh, amendment process um but i do think that the larger and more contentious issue with research animals is you know whether we should be performing uh, animal testing and if so what type of research do we consider acceptable as a society. And you know, I'll leave that question open for the moment cause it is a bit of a complex one. Uh, but I will add that I think we can all agree that this type of legislation makes a lot of sense and we should, um, uh, it should probably be enacted into law with just a, a few adjustments. And you know that anytime we are determining whether to perform animal testing, uh, that the welfare of the research animals needs to be optimal and the possible adver- adverse effects on them needs to be kind of weighed against the gain in potential scientific knowledge. If that makes sense.
1: Absolutely. I mean, and so I, I. I mean, this is one of those common sense bills. I feel it's just uh, of legislation that should pass really without much thought, especially when you have those two uh, Republican and Democrat <laughs> across the board uh, agreeing on this. So again, definitely common sense bills. Uh, but I, you're exactly right. I, I feel that the bigger picture uh, with pieces of legislation like this are we're moving closer, really, to the elimination or at least lessening of the number of pets being tested, especially when when we know there are alternatives, alternatives to, um, again, that can be done much more humanely. Again, they had studies on basically using human cells and computer models, uh, which are more compassionate. And these methods uh, are also providing, again, to be, I think, much more effective. So, uh, again, so hopefully, again, we'll we'll find this piece of legislation on the president's desk pretty quickly here, uh, and we'll get this signed. All right. So, uh, hopefully guys, uh, and Tim, uh, what do you have up for us? Uh, uh, next today?
2: Uh, so they did the, uh, the 2020 Westminster best in show. Um, winner this year was a, uh, standard poodle named Seba. Uh, I, I, I gotta admit, I'm not, not uh, something I've ever paid a ton of attention to. Um, so I kind of learned a, a fair amount of uh, interesting things looking into this, uh, First of all, uh, congratulations to Siba. um, hard to, hard to say that this is not an impressive looking dog, uh, <laughs> yeah. it is,
3: yeah, down. just <laughs>
2: very fancy, um, makes me feel very inadequate. Just, yeah, I mean, just, I, I don't put nearly, nearly the level of grooming that this dog does. Um, Things I also found out that I thought were pretty interesting. I just, you know, Siba, that's a a fairly straightforward name. I just assumed these dogs just had normal names. If somebody came into our clinic and said, like, this is my standard poodle Siba, that makes sense. That's something you would name a dog. But I'm looking at at previous winners, and there is, in 2014, after all, painting the sky. Uh, We've got Garbanita's California Journey. Rumor has it. All I Care About Is Love, uh, <laughs> Afternoon Tea, uh, I, I really didn't know that these dogs were, were named like race That was that was interesting to me, and now I'm really angry that we don't have patients named All I Care About Is Love, that would make things way more interesting around here, way more interesting. The other interesting thing to me is, so, you know, the basic premise of the show is, you know, you've got your different groups, uh, you've got your, you know, the terrier group, the water dog group, et cetera. Um, And then, you know, best in show is based not on, you know, who's the best dog, just generally speaking, it's who is the best representation of their breed, which makes sense, Uh, you know, on paper, then that means any breed could win if you're, you know, even if it's not you know, necessarily such a fancy dog as a, as a poodle, you know, you could be the best beagle. You could be the most beagly beagle, and you would win. However, I have some concerns about the, the um, standards that, that are, have been happening. Um, Fox Terriers, 15 times they've won. Poodles. Whether it's mini, toy, standard, like 12 times. And then you've got a bunch of other breeds that have won like once, like my, you know, the Beagle. They've only won one year. I don't think that standard poodles are just bred more accurately to the breed standard than any other breed. So I'm a little suspicious that, you know, we're we're seeing some. Uh, preferences of the judges just the the breeds that they like and you know some of our you know golden retrievers our labradors all of our favorite you know breeds aren't getting the representation that they deserve i I believe Uh, yeah
1: tim (laughs) i i couldn't agree with you more all right (laughs) again i know westminster is a big deal all right but I'm a little upset that we've never had a greyhound winner, all right? I mean, because you've got to be kidding me. You are not going to find a breed with a better temperament, period, all right? When it comes to appearance, you're not going to find a more muscular and perfectly sculpted dog. Third, there are not more. there's not a more graceful dog out there. I mean, just watch them run. I'm going to start a, basically a social media campaign to push for Westminster to recognize that greyhounds are perfect. Who's with me?
2: Oh, I'm I'm with you. Oh, I'm not you know not necessarily with the greyhounds because they're they're <laughs> weird looking, but um, you know other breeds. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think you know I think we need to get you know take this to the streets. I think we need to kind of you know let Westminster know we're not going to take this anymore. Like, we demand representation. I agree.
4: In in the back room dealing. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh guys okay all right well again guys I, I hope you guys are with me on this one all right right, we'll, we'll push for our individual breeds right greyhounds are the best but we'll push for our individual breeds all right we're, we're gonna make this happen all right all right so finally guys I just got to quickly mention all right that I have all right uh, that dr. McCarthy really she got me hooked on this documentary the Tiger King all right maybe some of you guys have heard of it all right but dr. McCarthy and I myself we just cannot deal. stop talking about this well Lauren Cox Writes an opinion piece, all right, uh, on um, on about how the filmmakers were like missing the point on the Tiger King documentary, and that they were focusing more on the cast of characters, uh, which obviously which became much more interesting than the exotic animals themselves and the abuse that they experienced. Uh, again, I would agree that this documentary did not focus enough on the animal abuse um, that was happening, but I would disagree, right? I clearly disagree about the impact that I think it will have on the animal trade industry. Uh, there have been many news pieces, news articles written about about the abuse that this man was, has been a part of, and none of them had made any impact when they focused on just the animal abuse by themselves. By combining the abuse and focusing on the characters themselves, they were really, again, honestly, they created the biggest documentary of all time. So hopefully this will create more awareness about the cruel, inhumane practice of uh, the animal trade. Uh, to me, the documentary really highlights a number of glaring issues, one of them being uh, the Federal Animal Welfare Act. Um, yeah, so the Federal Animal Welfare Act, this is, uh, for, one, for one thing, it's, it's just way too weak. It's, you know, it's poorly, I don't think it's enforced really at all, and it's just completely outdated. Uh, There needs to be a way for this type, for this department to be able to separate like the backyard zoos and the animal rescues or sanctuaries from the many excellent zoos who give animals um, just the uh, highest standard of care. And who also are focusing, really focus on educating the public on so many things. It was, um, Again, it was just, uh, it was difficult to know who's, like, whose practices were more repulsive throughout these episodes, like the backyard <laughs> zoos or the animal sanctuaries, which had their own questionable practices. Uh, again, in contrast, to me, like the large, well-funded, highly high-quality zoos, I mean, provide animals with really, I feel like, the ha- highest standard of care. They also focus on educating the public about these amazing animals and why, again, why their place in this world is so important. And to me, they also donate just so, I mean, they donate so much money and create loads of awareness on the conservation effort, which really should be, again, just really the the forefront of what we really need to focus on. And so, so to me, we can't just say basically, like get rid of all zoos or all aquariums or places like these, which I think some people kind of like push for. Um, <clears throat> because we'll be doing much more harm in the long run. So if zoos, again, because if zoos have to close, people are not gonna be aware of what's going on in other places of the planet. And again, they'll never know how or why to help. So uh, again, I, I understand um, you know, Ms. Cox's opinion uh, about it because they didn't focus as much. But again, I think in the big picture of what that documentary was able to do, um, they just painted such a really great picture of really getting getting these people to be just more invested in how these people are acting and how these animals are treated. So, um, so again, I don't know if you guys watched the documentary at all. I know Dr. McCarthy did. Oh, I
5: watched it. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> we talk about it every watched.
1: day. We talk about it literally every day. Uh, but again, that's just my feeling on the um, on the Tiger King.
3: Yeah, it, it's pretty insane. Like it's something that I never knew even existed. Just those people in general and how you can just have. Basically, it seems like anybody can just get a tiger if they want, which seems unreal. Um, so hopefully this will kind of ignite something where we start having regulations on who is, who's allowed to have these large animals and what they're allowed to do with them. Obviously, I agree with you. I think uh, zoos in general, um, if they are appropriately managed and have environmental enrichment and mental stimulation and, and proper care for the animals, I think are a good thing. And the fact that they are, you know, uh, educating the public with conservation efforts and things like that. Um, But we can't just have anybody just owning these, these animals, especially when you um, watch these people and see kind of how unstable they are in general. Why are we giving them
5: (laughs) (laughs) access to
3: to these animals and, and kind of, it also educates the public on, you know, it's really cute when you get to hold a baby animal, but what's the consequence for that animal when it, it reaches uh, Three months old where or where does it go after that. And so hopefully it will make people kind of second guess when they are um, Kind of supporting these these people that have these animals and and kind of make better conscious decisions about it
2: absolutely controversial opinion you guys are all talking about how we have to limit the access to tigers i think the issue is the opposite i think it's too hard to get a tiger (laughs) that's why these people all end up with all of the tigers (laughs) if everybody could get a tiger they'd be dispersed throughout the population they would get better care i think that's the solution is tiger for everyone. honestly You're able to take care of your one tiger, but you can't take care of like 200, like some of these guys have. Obviously, that's not realistic. <laughs> so, one tiger for every American is my Tim
3: 2020 <laughs> tiger for everyone.
2: <laughs> oh my goodness, guys! Awesome, awesome. All right,
1: uh, again, we'll we'll have to de- agree to disagree, Tim, on, on that one. But yes, all right. Um, but you guys, awesome. Thank team again for keeping us up to date on animal news. Uh, Again, up next, we get to talk with the always fun and extremely talented Dr. Priya Bhatt about veterinary acupuncture when we get back.
0: The Vet Bros Pet Education Charitable Fund is a 501c3 organization created by Dr. Mondrian Contreras. Dr. Contreras had twin boys early in his vet school education. He often had to study with his children, which led to their love for animals and desire to help educate others about pets. The Vet Bros Pet Education Charitable Fund stems from this love of animals and education. The Vet Bros Pet Education Charitable Fund's mission is to help educate children and young adults about how to best care for their pets and to help them fulfill their dreams of becoming veterinarians, animal advocates, and animal health care professionals. This organization helps provide scholarship money, as well as educational seminars to help individuals realize their dreams. The Vet Pros Pet Education Charitable Fund also provides financial assistance towards health care for pets in families experiencing various hardships, such as bankruptcy and unemployment, or natural disasters such as flooding, tornado, or fire. Please visit our website, vetbrospeteducation.org, and consider making a donation to our cause. You are tuned in to Healthy Tales with Dr. Mondrian Contreras. We'd love to hear from you on our program today. Please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vetbrospeteducationcf at gmail.com. Now back to Healthy Tales.
1: Welcome to Healthy Tales. We have a aging pet population in this country and it's only getting older. The great advances in medicine have allowed our pets to live longer, healthier, happier lives. However, with advanced, with advanced age years and age-related diseases, which result in pain and discomfort. What's more is that many of our pets are not only dealing with chronic pain problems such as arthritis and muscle wasting, but they're also dealing with comorbidities such as kidney disease and heart disease. It can be difficult to treat these uh, pets safely because medications to, to make them feel better often have side effects that can be unpleasant or complicate their other diseases. Acupuncture has become a great option for owners to help treat very complicated conditions, especially in our aging pet population who suffer from chronic pain. Dr. Priya Bhatt is an expert in the area of acupuncture and has been providing amazing service for our pets for almost a decade. Dr. Bhatt is a UCLA graduate. Got her master's in equine physiology in 2006, earned her doctorate in veterinary medicine from the University of Illinois, ILL, and and got advanced certificates from the Chi Institute of Veterinary Acupuncturists, Veterinary Food Therapy, Natural Healing, Advanced Veterinary Acupuncturist, and Veterinary Medical Manipulation Practitioner. She is a past CVMA uh, Chicago Veterinary Medical Association president. She does an excellent job educating her clients. She really takes the time to connect with owners. She's always am- has amazing chemistry with her clients and patients. And she is extremely passionate about her work and just one of my favorite people to talk to. Thank you so much, Priya, for being here.
5: Thank you for having me. Uh, where, did you, where did you grow up? I'm actually a Chicagoland native, uh, born and raised and went to Barrington High School, so very close by actually. You know, it's funny because obviously we've known each other for a long
1: time, but I was like, why did you go to UCLA? You just wanted to get away?
5: Um, I love my traditional cultural upbringing as well as a Midwestern um, uh, feeling that I had. But um, by the end of a high school, I was ready to have a different experience and I felt my spirit was being called um to a more um, free-spirited land, I would say. And so uh, UCLA was a a really great learning experience because it helped me not only advance educationally, but socially, as well as um, just finding myself and who I am today.
1: That's awesome. That's awesome. Thank you. And so I, when I was looking on your website, all right, <clears throat> I saw like, you know, there, there was this, you know, you had this great picture uh, with one of your pets and you have it on your page that it, they really credit you for becoming a veterinarian. All right. And so, yes. so who was that, who was that dog? And was that, she's was actually that, that my first animal, was it?
5: My, she was my first, well, like um, first I did own. have hamsters. Right. Sorry.
1: No, your first owned animal. Like your Yeah,
5: um, no, I actually had hamsters before. I still find them very um, lovable pets um, if they don't bite you. But um, <laughs> my very first dog uh, I got when I was 13, thank you to uh, my dad who finally caved in. But uh, that was Tasha, and uh, she was there with me. As we all know, we have ups and downs as we grow up and go through our teenage years, go through high school. Um, I too have those ups and downs. And I found consistently that uh, my dog was there unapologetically, unjudgmental, just there to be with me. And um, I felt that I needed to give back to her for the rest of my life.
1: That's awesome. That's awesome. Thank you.
5: Did she go with you to UCLA? She did not. I was 18. Um, I can say that my I was a very responsible high school child. <laughs> I did not become a a responsible college kid. So the dog stayed at home with the parents while I went and developed myself. <laughs> excellent.
1: Excellent. What did you uh what did you major in at UCLA?
5: Psychobiology. It was actually uh, kind of a revolutionary um uh, major at that time, um, it was it's the biological um, evaluation of psychological diseases. So although veterinary medicine really called to me, um, there was a part of me that felt that I could really be a good psychologist or a psychiatrist. And so um, I took advantage because UCLA did not have um, a veterinary program or an animal program. I took advantage to learn what I could of given the environment that I was in. And I wouldn't take it back for a second. I loved that major and I loved what I learned. Uh, that's great. And so what
1: is the timeline then? So then after UCLA, then you do get your, do you go straight to get your master's?
5: Um, I did go get my master's in equine physiology, um, where that would really honed in on my research capabilities and It made me evaluate that research is not my thing. (laughs) It is extremely challenging. So hats off to all the researchers out there. But um, I I did get the opportunity to connect with horses and really get comfortable with them, uh, be in a different environment and um, get challenged in a different way. So it essentially made me a stronger candidate when I went into veterinary school.
1: Awesome. Enzo, then you chose uh, University of Illinois for vet school.
5: I wanted to come home. I'm still a Chicagoan at heart. People cannot understand why I left California. Um, But I did my city thing and I'm really a suburbanite. So um, I can't find a better place to live actually than Chicagoland. I really can't. And so I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to have developed the community of colleagues and and clients and friends that I have. And um, As much as I miss my friends around the country, and California will always be a second home to me, I am at heart a Chicagoan.
1: Awesome. What was your vet school experience like?
5: Oh, gosh. I'm one of those that uh, (laughs) it was really challenging for me. Um, I was actually told right before I entered vet school that I would be tested on every single breed that existed for dog, cat, horse, and cow. And I knew that I would fail if that was the case. Uh, Luckily, that was not the case. But what the public doesn't really know is how hard the curriculum is for doctorates of veterinary medicine uh, compared to a lot of medical doctors. Um, I'm very fortunate that I have a lot of experience in the MD program. Um, I have a lot of uh, doctor family as well as friends. And um, I think they really honestly get it easy compared to us when we go through uh, schooling, but not a lot of uh, people know that. It is a growing uh, piece of information, uh, Mm. which makes, me feel really happy when more people realize how difficult it is to get in, get through, and then just survive um, following. So um, I'm always willing to teach that not as a method of be like, oh, pity me, but that we really fought all of us as veterinarians to do what we're doing today. And it comes from a place of passion first.
1: That's awesome. And so is that why you chose to become a veterinarian or? Yes.
5: Um, well, no, uh, I, so I was a lucky one that at six years of age, I knew I wanted to become a doctor. Mm -hmm. I only thought I was going to become a human doctor. Mm -hmm. Um, that changed, you know, um, there were a lot of, when you go, I'm a very emotional person. I do not, um, I I'm, I guess I'm not forgiving about that. I think the emotional aspect of me makes me a good doctor, a good communicator, as well as a, a good acupuncturist um, and healer. But um, during during the growing up times, we all know um, that it, it can be challenging. And there are what a lot of the public doesn't even understand, which I've realized in the last few years, actually, is that there the people that are in veterinary medicine are all um, – have a heart that is very easily um, broken, and it's it's can be broken by clients and and patients and and our bosses and classmates. Um, and so it takes a lot of strength to get through it. Um, and now in the last, I know we're going kind to of diverting topics here, but in the last couple of years, we've had a lot of movements recognizing mental health in uh, veterinary medicine. And I'm a huge advocate of that. So um, I kind of forgot your question, I'll be honest. No, <laughs> My experience in vet school was that it was a lot of up and down. I will... I loved and appreciated every single moment I worked with a client and with a patient. Um, I got to say that uh, it was a little bit challenging with my classmates and residents and interns, uh, mainly because there was a lot of competition. I'm not a competitive person. Um, I wanted to be there to socialize and learn and advance. But uh, competition is a thing. And so I got to say it was challenging. I I wouldn't say that I would easily go back, (laughs) but I'm glad to be where I am now.
1: Well again uh, it's, it, again, I, I think again acupuncture and veterinarian fits you absolutely perfectly because we like to we love to connect with with owners, and the absolutely. social aspect of it is it's so important and so but you say that obviously you know you're, you know as far as schooling was you know difficult because of the competition, but then you want to do even more schooling and so, yeah, I'm so you, how did you get into wanting to do more schooling oh, because again God, I because how did you get um, into doing acupuncture
5: yeah, so actually um. You know, when I graduated, well, again, a lot of people don't realize is that if veterinarians upon graduation, if they don't seek their own mentorship or seek their own um, ability to figure things out, um, then a lot of us are actually often left alone um, unless you go out and seek out an internship. As you know, Mondrian, you (laughs) you sought out an internship. Um, You came out stronger with, um, with the knowledge that you gained in that additional one year of being pushed in various areas of medicine and surgery. Um, Upon graduation, many of us were not promised the mentorship or were promised it and not given it. I was very fortunate that upon graduation, I took some time for myself because my pets were sick and um, I found my first job, which was with an integrative veterinarian. And I really kind of learned who i want to be around that time um but it, it wasn't fully developed so then i had the opportunity of running in to a wonderful lady who ended up inviting me to join her multiple pro- multi-doctor practice and as you know you and i were associates for mm-hmm. uh, three years mm-hmm. so um that honed in my medicine and my surgery um i will never forget uh, our our one of our mentors, Dr. Sarabasi, saying, don't ever forget your your elements of basically medicine and surgery. And I truly one-heartedly believe that. But there came a time when I was having clients come in saying, why is this happening? What can I do to resolve it? Can we get to an answer to it? And all I could say is, I'm sorry, I don't know. I will look for an answer for you, but I don't have an answer for you. And I think that's what frustrated me, is that uh, I kept on looking at my toolbox of what I can provide to patients and clients, and I felt I hit a wall. I felt really strong in my medicine, I felt strong enough in my surgery, um, in my emergency skills. My roots in the capabilities of managing a patient, especially on critical areas or suffering, were there. But what about everything else? What about in the middle? Why is it they were only treating as they're coming in? What about when they're not here? How do we treat them so that they still are getting the appropriate care behind our backs, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so I did have friends that actually told me about Chi Institute and their experiences Mm -hmm. And there are a couple of schools of acupuncture in Chinese medicine. There's also a school of Western acupuncture that doesn't follow Chinese medicine. But um, I was told that I would be drawn energetically to the Chi Institute. And wow, without doubt, I was. Dr. Shea there really taught us to embrace what we've learned as veterinarians, as medical doctors, um, but also open our minds to what was there two, three thousand years ago, prior to the advancement of technology and the capabilities of what we're able to do now? And so, I started getting answers to questions that I didn't have. I was able to turn to my clients and say, "Well, look, you know, pre- I'm like historically, according to Chinese medicine, that existed two to three thousand years ago, when they had abilities to diagnose and treat." Um, this is a pattern that causes this condition. I understand this. Do you understand it? and how can we go about to correct it um, when traditional medicine cannot diagnose or correct it? Nice,
1: awesome. And so what where where um are there different schools of acupuncture?
5: yes so chi institute and ivas are the two main uh, chinese medicine acupuncture schools ivas is an international veterinary acupuncture society it tends to be available all throughout the country chi um, institute is available locally in uh, florida about uh, 20 minutes away from gainesville um, he has uh, also opened up uh, schools in China, uh, Spain, as well as South America. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if there's one or two that I'm missing as well. So um, Dr. Shea's philosophy and what he teaches in Chinese medicine, acupuncture, food therapy—it it has blown up in the country because he doesn't teach. He doesn't teach you just what was there historically. He teaches you a way of life to learn for yourself. Um, IVIS is a very good program as well because it does root itself in Chinese medicine. Um, There are two, I guess, um, opposing sides in the sense that there is Eastern belief of Chinese medicine, energy movement, all that was there documented two to 3,000 years ago and is believed today. There is another school rooted in Colorado, and now uh, I believe there are some um, mobile, smaller quote-unquote courses or schools that are teaching point acupuncture. So that basically means the animal comes in with hip pain. You know the points to place the needles in to make them better. Now, does those conditions treat internal medicine, heart conditions, all of that jazz? Um, No, but will the unintentional insertion of the needle create a movement in that animal And the answer is yes, but these point acupuncture, westernized schools don't believe in Chinese medicine and energy movement. So it really creates a clash between us. But at the end of the day, I try to sit back and remember and remind everybody that we all are here trying to find ways to treat our patients.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And so where did, um, you know, again, where did acupuncture originate from?
5: Uh, about two to three thousand years ago, it was identified in the Shang Dynasty in China. Um, shortly after that, it was introduced in Japan. Um, there is a text written by Bo Li, who documented traditional Chinese veterinary medicine for the very first time. To me, I think it's extraordinarily important to understand the history of Chinese medicine and acupuncture because that they're only by understanding that can you understand the implications of it being brought back today in the um, 21st century and really being pushed to help where, again, Western medicine or traditional medicine has perhaps hit a brick wall for the patient and the client. Okay.
1: And so what is traditional Chinese medicine? Would you How would you define it?
5: Traditional Chinese medicine takes account of everything of that patient so again animal or person we want to remember that chinese medicine actually did start with horses and um, acupuncturing horses because remember that back then they were used for everything for travel for um cargo for war so um you know making sure that their horses were in good condition and capable of doing the work they were able to identify acupuncture and treat them with that so i gotta apologize i forgot your question no
1: no i think you answered it perfectly again so just tell me what traditional chinese medicine is and so how would you define like what acupuncture is to the lay person then
5: okay so So, um i'm sorry i'll take it back for a second the traditional chinese medicine looks at the entire individual so evaluates that person's constitution meaning like personality as well as um you know the environment how that a person or animal grew up, additionally to how that person or animal functions to day-to-day today. Um, my typical consults, like I, I take up to an hour to an hour and a half taking history from the very beginning of that animal's life to all the way to where we are today. And a huge component of that is also incorporating the environment of that animal, which means the people involved in that as well. And so it is not just You know, doc, I have diarrhea. You know, can you give me a medication? It is this animal continues to have diarrhea. We can't we can't just continue throwing meds at it, right? So, according to traditional medicine, we're going to try to treat it. But what if, what if this is a case um, that is negatively responding to every medication you throw at it? Clients don't have the ability to go and seek out endoscopy or diarrhea panels or whatnot. um, There is still a way to identify what type of issues going on in that animal that is causing this chronic diarrhea and then choosing the appropriate acupuncture points to start stabilizing that patient. And so uh, going back to your original question, um, TCVM, traditional Chinese veterinary medicine or traditional Chinese medicine as it applies in humans, um, is really taking to account the entire patient, not just that particular condition in which that patient comes in for at that time.
1: Oh, very cool, very cool. And so how does, um, is acupuncture considered holistic medicine? Uh,
5: Yes, so yes and no. So um, there are very, this day and age, there's a lot of controversy in talking about um, holistic medicine. Um, Especially when it comes to your traditional Western doctors, whether they are DVMs, doctor of veterinary medicine, or MDs, medical doctors, um, there's a huge disconnect between what can quote-unquote holistic medicine do. This originates way back when, when chiropractic medicine started, Um, there was a huge disconnect between uh, medical doctors and chiropractic doctors Um, in the sense that they didn't understand why chiropractic Doctors can do a little crack here and there and could potentially cause healing. They didn't want to open their minds to it. Um, So when we talk about holistic, medicine. I may be one of the few doctors that makes a very uh, specific point to educate my colleagues and my clients that I am, I work holistically, but I am in fact an integrative doctor. That means I truly believe in the value of vaccinations, preventative medicine, as well as uh, traditional drugs to manage pain in certain conditions. Um, Holistic medicine there are some holistic doctors that also consider themselves integrative, but they'll call themselves holistic and then there's the other side of holistic medicine where um, and I know some of these colleagues, you know, that they, they don't uh, believe in heartworm prevention. They don't uh, recommend rabies vaccines. And um, that tends to be a, a huge concern for me as well as many of our rooted MDs and DVMs because this is what advanced medicine has taught us um, by research of what how the society has changed in development of uh, now we're seeing – organisms that we didn't see before. We're seeing infections that we haven't seen before. Hello, COVID. And before that, hello, SARS. So, um, you know, I think that vaccination preventative medicine is extraordinarily important in certain endemic areas as well. Um, I think rabies is exceptionally important given um, the eradication of what we've seen in the United States um, and how it's rebounding in cats right now, in certain cats. So um, it, it, I do try to make a very big distinguishment of holistic versus integrative, you know, versus traditional medicine for that reason and ability to communicate with my clients and my colleagues and make basically lay a baseline of what my beliefs are so that they can choose an appropriate practitioner for them. But does acupuncture lie under holistic medicine and integrated medicine? And the answer is yes. It can also now be used as a true form of medical healing. So many of these specialty centers often are hiring CVAs, uh, Certified Veterinary Acupuncturists, to be part of their rehab teams because they have seen the true benefit of both acupuncture and rehab together.
1: That's awesome. And, and again, I, I love that you do um, uh, integrative medicine because, again, to me, uh, my neurologist at the University of Florida, I don't know if you know her, Cheryl Chrisman. I do. Um, but she is huge in Excellent. as far as, you know, proponent for acupuncture. And really, she is, she's just saying that, again, yep, a lot of times these dogs with intervertebral disc disease, definitely, they need to have the surgery done, have the surgery done in a house. But that acupuncture has been a huge, a huge uh, really Huge factor and necessary, really, to help support rehabilitation process. And so, uh, And so, again, I think when we combine these two pieces of medicine, and that's why I love the way, uh, again, that you practice, uh, because again, they, they think they complement each other, and you know, I they don't think, do. You know, that, and I don't think they have to be opposites of each other. I think they can really complement each other. So again, I really do love that. Okay, uh, what types of conditions um, do you feel is acupuncture intended for? Well, I know, uh, I guess you know, that's not you know, I know it's kind of All of them, really, you know, because it can really... Do all of them, but you know, as far as um, the experience that you've had, what are some uh, really some cases and examples of cases that you've treated and and some of their outcomes?
5: Sure, so um, I'm really grateful that um, there are general practitioners out there as well as neurologists out there that uh, really know who I am and value what I do. So, a huge brunt of my uh, business in the last five years has been uh, based on referrals, and so I am. Predominantly referral based, so that the client has some idea of what is going on with their pet, as well as the goal in terms of what they want to achieve in hiring me. And I think that that's really important to create that circular um, effect of treatment for the client is really identifying what is it that they want uh, when they come to us. Um, so the types of conditions I often get referred to for neurological and orthopedic conditions, but I got to say that um, a lot of times I'll come in and there are multiple conditions going on. There's IBD, there's Cushing's, there's, um, we may have a cervical disc and we have hip dysplasia going on. Um, we have a liver mass or pancreatic mass. I, um, so one of my favorite cases that I have right now is, um, is a patient that was, that was referred to me uh, for potentially having orthopedic weakness. And upon evaluation, uh, and let me back up and say that this is also an individual that, ha- that was identified to have pancreatic cancer, had workup and surgery for pancreatic cancer, and it came back. And once it came back, it was determined that, you know, let's not surgically go back in and give in the best quality of life. So part of that quality of life was, hey, he's got to mobilize. Um, And so gratefully, this uh, GP referred to me upon entering uh, the home. This is my determination to, is this an orthopedic case or is this something else? I hear the history. I watch the animal. I examine the animal. And the determination comes that this animal is orthopedically and neurologically 100% sound. So what is causing the weakness in this animal? Um, I'm often going in and teaching clients energetic weakness. And so this cancer is taking a huge toll on him and creating an energetic weakness. As an energy practitioner, as an acupuncturist, acupuncture is really moving energy. And so those of us who are comfortable uh, accepting that and working with that energy, we can move a lot of stagnation, pain, as well as disease. So I can tell you that we're now reaching about six months out of me starting with this patient. He is still orthopedically sound. Um, He tends to be a little bit weak, but his pancreatic mass has not grown. He continues to have a wonderful quality of life every day. And um, this is just one case of what one doctor thought was causing a problem what a family thought was causing the problem i came in and determined something else and through acupuncture was able to there were a lot of other a lot of things i showed them that to determine to show them why I felt that this was not orthopedic. He had wonderful range of motion. He did not have orthopedic pain. Um, and all of those, you know, pain, when it comes to pain, that's what we're supposed to find as doctors. Mm-hmm. Um, and he didn't have any of it, but he sure enough had some discomfort in his pancreas. So this is a successful case. And let's look at another case of gulp. Um, not a lot of people understand or know what gulp is. That's the geriatric onset of laryngeal paralysis paresis. Blah, that's a huge <laughs> mouthful. But basically, um, labs are, Labrador retrievers are most prone to it. Uh, some of us who know, um, who've had labs for a really long time, that they are, some of them can be prone to a condition in which um, part of their uh, nerve system fails, being causing them to create. I'm trying to say this as as simple as possible so that people can understand the condition. But basically, creating a hoarse voice and um, their bark goes away. That's just simplifying it. However, in some cases, this neurological defect defect can actually extend to the point of creating significant neurological weakness in the back end. And so, I do have a case right now um, who I started working with two years ago. where uh, mom, uh, basically the neurologist said, hey, let's see what happens. And um, mom was at a point like she's miserable, everything hurts, she doesn't move. Um, Long story short, this girl has not only had a great quality of life with consistent acupuncture, herbal therapy, food therapy, um, essential oil therapy, combination of everything, including traditional drugs of gabapentin as needed, Trimadol and non-steroidal anti-inflammatories as needed. Because again, it's a multimodal effect to try and make these patients uh, comfortable and live the quality of life that they're meant to live. Um, And so not only two years later, mobility-wise is she still moving around, but she actually went through a huge splenectomy about three uh, three months ago and is still doing great. And we're at about 12, 13 years of age. That's incredible. Yeah. yeah. That's so that's only a couple of couple of cases. Um, certainly I have plenty and I'm always uh, trying to update my website, but it's really, really challenging. <laughs> um, and I have a ton of cases that I, I want to teach the public because not many people are, or veterinarians realize that there is a tremendous amount of healing that can be done outside of just orthopedic and neurological support. Awesome.
1: Now, Priya, This again, this has been absolutely wonderful. And so if, if a client wanted to, how, how should they go about choosing a veterinary acupuncturist for their pet?
5: Yeah. So as I say to most clients, you know, when choosing their own medical doctor or counselor, psychiatrist, doctorate of veterinary medicine, your, you know, other family doctor, um, you got to go take a session. You know, you got to try. Um, in my case, I... I really make myself as available as possible on my website. Uh, You're not going to see different sides of me. Who I am as a person is who I am with my family, my friends, my colleagues, my clients. I don't change. And so um, I built that website on my own to put my love into it and really identify what type of people I want drawn to me. Um, As you know, we all have to have um, our own sanity as well. So we need to always find a balance for our own lives, uh, which means that I I really look for the people that have the intention to work very closely as a team. Um, And when I say as a team, that doesn't mean necessarily, you know, with only their acupuncturist, but if your GP or specialty doctor has been with you throughout the way, their opinion matters. And so I would say, when looking for an acupuncturist, one, look for that certification, so, uh, it's CVA certified veterinary acupuncturist. That means that that individual has gone through a year to year and a half of extensive training, including doing case studies and write-ups. If you don't see that, that means that that individual may have gone through the training or may have gone through the course, Um, but there are downsides of needling. You can do harm if you don't know what you're doing. So if a veterinarian has only gone through a course and does not understand the principles of when to needle, when not to needle, what to look for, um, then yeah, they can do a lot of harm. Um, so I definitely say look for the and for the letters CVA, and then the other thing is look to how you feel, you know, uh, when you meet that individual and what that individual says is that individual open to discussing things with you as a team, open to working with your primary doctor, your specialty doctor. Um, because when doing it alone, it, it, it only, it it takes away the team effort. Right. Um, so those are my two principles on looking for someone to treat your pet. No, uh,
1: again, Dr. Bot, yeah, this has been absolutely wonderful. We have about a million things that we actually probably need to get to more and we'll have to do this again. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Uh, again, thank you so much, Priya. Again, this thank has you been for absolutely, having me. oh my God, absolutely. This has been wonderful. Uh, again, I hope we can re- reconnect on another episode because I know, again, like I said, there's much more areas to cover on veterinary acupuncture. So thank absolutely. you so much. Thank you. When we get back, I'll be wrapping things up with my product of the week. Stick around. You are not going to want to miss this one.
0: The Vet Bros Pet Education Charitable Fund is a 501c3 organization created by Dr. Mondrian Contreras. Dr. Contreras had twin boys early in his vet school education. He often had to study with his children, which led to their love for animals and desire to help educate others about pets. The Vet Bros Pet Education Charitable Fund stems from this love of animals and education. The Vet Bros Pet Education Charitable Fund's mission is to help educate children and young adults about how to best care for their pets and to help them fulfill their dreams of becoming veterinarians, animal advocates, and animal health care professionals. This organization helps provide scholarship money, as well as educational seminars to help individuals realize their dreams. The Vet Pros Pet Education Charitable Fund also provides financial assistance towards health care for pets in families experiencing various hardships, such as bankruptcy and unemployment, or natural disasters such as flooding, tornado, or fire. Please visit our website, vetbrospeteducation.org, and consider making a donation to our cause. You are tuned in to Healthy Tales with Dr. Mondrian Contreras. We'd love to hear from you on our program today. Please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vetbrospeteducationcf at gmail.com. Now back to Healthy Tales.
1: Okay, it's time for our product of the week. Our pets are going through one of the worst epidemics in our lifetime, pet obesity. It's one of the leading causes of death and poor quality of life. What are the consequences of dogs and cats being obese? Reduced life expectancy, diminished quality of life, skin disorders, orthopedic diseases, respiratory disorders, and hormonal changes, among others. We are living in a time where pet nutrition has never been better, and it has the potential to give our pets longer, healthier lives. According to the Association of Pet Obesity, 60% of cats and 50% of dogs are overweight or obese which are staggering numbers. But if you work at a veterinary hospital, you'd probably think that that number is even higher. An article in JAMA in 2002 titled Effects of Diet Restriction on Lifespan and Age-Related Changes in Dogs showed that a group that was fed 25% fewer calories than the control group lived almost two years longer than the control group. So if we know that by feeding less calories is a vital aspect of getting our pets to be at a healthy body weight, What is the easiest way for us to accomplish that? Well, it's as easy as using our product of the week, the simple yet incredible measuring cup. Maybe this product was not only invented to make delicious cakes and cookies, but I believe also to save our cats and dogs. This product can save you thousands of dollars over the course of your pet's life if used properly. You might be asking yourself, how do I use a measuring cup properly? Great question. Possibly the most important first step to using a measuring cup is knowing how much food is actually in that cup. For example, many times when I ask owners, how much do you feed your pet every day? The response is often, my pet gets two scoops per day. Well, two scoops of what? Two scoops of a quarter cup? Two scoops of one cup? Two heaping scoops? Two level scoops? Two scoops of a red solo cup? Do you see the confusion? If you are reading the measuring cup, and are able to know how much you are giving every day, then you'll have a much easier time reducing your your pet's daily caloric intake. This will make it much easier to help your pet lose weight. I see a lot of amazing owners every day whose pets are overweight, and I know this can be very complex problems with lots of variables. Large families in the house with many people feeding the pet, multiple pets in the house where one dog is eating the other dog's food, table scraps, lack of exercise, So just to name a few. But even with all those factors, the measuring cup is the best and should always be the first place we start with any weight loss or maintenance diet. So the first thing you are going to do for your pet is, one, get a measuring cup. Two, if you're not sure how much you've been feeding your pet, just eyeball what you have been placing in the food bowl and then put that into a measuring cup so you can have an idea of what you have been feeding your pet regularly. Next, weigh your pet. And depending on how overweight they are, You and your veterinarian will discuss how much less to feed. Now that you know how much you have been feeding, this will be a quick conversation on the phone. Diet and exercise will be key for an overweight pet to achieve a healthy body condition. We have to remember that weight is not distributed just in the skin, but in organs as well, and that's where disease occurs. One of the biggest challenges we face when trying to help our pets to lose weight is to figure out what is their daily caloric intake. If this is known, then calories can be eliminated in a responsible, safe way to help pets with weight loss. Again, this product provides the easiest way to help control the amount of calories your pet consumes in a day. If we can control that part of the equation, we can help prevent a lot of ailments that accompany high calorie diets and which often result in diabetes, heart disease, or arthritis. Then we can help your pet live longer, healthier, and happier lives. Thank you so much for joining us today. Special thanks to my amazing co hosts Dr. Elaine McCarthy, Dr. Robbie Ansell, and veterinary technician, Tim. And to my amazing expert guest, Dr. Priya Bhatt. We hope you join us for our next episode where we give you more great tips and help you unleash your pet parenting power.
0: Thank you for listening to Healthy Tales. Please join your host, Dr. Mondrian Contreras, for another edition of the program next Wednesday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Here's wishing better health for you and your pet.